Well, good morning, FBN. If you have your Bibles, grab those and turn to Ephesians, wait for it, chapter 5, all right? That's why that video that you saw like 47 weeks in a row didn't play, all right? We thought you'd just all like to breathe and not have to see that video one more time because we actually finished Ephesians chapter 4 last week, and so we're excited about jumping into chapter 5. I have a bit of a warning for you. It doesn't get any easier. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to some really like kind of uplifting, encouraging sermon. I'm just going to let you know this isn't that, okay? I need it just as much as you do, but we're going to follow where Ephesians takes us. And so uh, Roxanne Poe is going to read today's passage for us. It's going to be the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 5, and, and we want you to be able to follow along in God's Word this morning. And so if you could grab a blue Bible in front of you, you don't have those, and turn to page 816. Uh, so you can follow along with her. Um, but any, other than that, if you're physically capable this morning, would you stand uh, for the reading of God's word? Good morning. Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Thank you, Roxanne. Let's pray. God, we are thrilled to be here this morning, and God, one of the reasons that we're thrilled to be here this morning is because we know that you're here. Um, we know that this is your word, uh, these are your people, and, and I'm so thankful for each person who uh, took time out of their lives and that you saw fit to bring to this very room this morning. And so God, we just ask now that you'll cash all that in, that you'll speak mightily through your word this morning, that, that your Holy Spirit will convict and encourage and draw, that, that those who don't know you will come to know you, and that those who do will, will leave here with a deeper understanding of who you are and a deeper commitment to you. And we ask that you do all this uh, through the power of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you. Have you ever been asked to do something that you knew was impossible? And think back, if you can remember a time like that, how did you react to it? Did you immediately just sort of like, no, I'm not even going to try that? Or did somehow the impossibility of the call sort of drive you to go for it, even though you knew you wouldn't get it? I want you to imagine with me a hypothetical this morning, and I'm going to admit to the start, it's a ridiculous hypothetical, okay? This, this would never happen, okay? But I just want you to follow along with this train of thought. Imagine uh, one of the things that the pastors get asked the most is, is to help people discern God's will for their life. Christians always want to know, what is God's will for my life? And so let's say for you, in this ridiculous hypothetical, God shows up and says, I'm gonna, you're going to be the one person, I'm just going to tell you it all clearly at one time, right? And my will for your life is for you to be a professional golfer, and not just a professional golfer, right? My will for you is that you need to break all of Jack Nicholas's records and all of Tiger Woods' records. And the problem is that if we gave you an entire bucket of balls, you wouldn't hit one of them 10 feet, right? Or imagine he, same kind of scenario. He comes to you and says, my will for you is to be a professional basketball player, and all I really need you to do is be better than Michael Jordan, right? But you're one of those people that we could leave in a gym all night by yourself, and we checked in in the morning, you'd have two points, Okay? Right? Or, or imagine if he says, I want you to be the world's greatest musician, and you are so bereft of talent you could be compared to a young Brett Parks. Okay? Now, what's the challenge to all those? Right? You're being called to something that you are not, and you're even being told to excel at it. And if we're honest, if that ever happened, it would just feel too big. And so what we would be tempted to do in this ridiculous hypothetical is to change the standard. Well, I might not be Tiger Woods, but... I broke 100, so that's pretty good, right? I might not be Michael Jordan, but I can now make 7 out of 10 free throws, and that's better than at the start. 
And so you'd, you, what you'd do is you'd get to a level that's better than before and you would think you arrived. But the problem is that's not what God called you to. He called you to be better than Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan. Now why am I entertaining such a ridiculous hypothetical? Well, it's because it's eerily close to what we've actually been called to. You understand, don't you, that God has very much called each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus to something that we are not? And we have all, in response to that, felt the temptation to lower the standard, to quit before we ever arrive at where he calls us to, to decide that we're good long before God would have made that call. And so as we start Ephesians 5 today, we're going to be reminded once again of how huge, how impossible, how difficult and enormous God's call is on our life. And and I'm telling you, in your flesh, as we unpack it, you're going to feel the temptation to begin to dismiss it. Well, certainly God can't expect that out of me. Or start to to excuse it. Well, I, I feel like I'm in a pretty good place right now. There are other people who need to feel this conviction more than I do. Or God's grace covers all my failings. Why should I keep striving for something I could never be? There's just one problem with that. This ridiculous standard that we're going to find in Ephesians 5 is repeated not just here, but throughout the Bible. And God means everything he says in his word. But when he repeats something again and again, that's something that he's letting us know he takes very seriously. And so what I want us to do this morning, instead of dismissing this or excusing it or trying to forget it, I want us to stop and consider it from his perspective. Why would God call us to something that we're incapable of? And how do, you, how do we think that he would want us to respond to such a call, and what can we learn about him through it? Because I can tell you at the start, right, that he does not place such a call on us to make us feel overburdened. He does not place such a call on us to make us more self-reliant, right? He does not place such a call on us to push us away from him. It is for our good. And so today I have two goals. I want us to be clear on exactly what it is we're being called to. And then I want us to think through the best way to respond. And so if you would, just quickly, just look back at Ephesians 5 with me where where Roxanne read for, starting in verse 1, when it tells us this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The first truth that I want to pull out for you comes from those first three words. And, and the first truth is this, that we are called to imitate God. It was so hard in studying for this message to get past those first three words. Follow God's examples. The NIV puts it, the, the Greek word that literally means to mimic, to imitate God. Right? And by the way, it's not the only time this is mentioned. If you've been here at all in the last several weeks, you know we've been walking through the end of chapter four because of this ridiculous call that we get in chapter four, verse 24. So look up about a paragraph Where 4 verse 24 says this, and to put on the new self created to what? Be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And again, not the only time this is mentioned. Colossians chapter 3, we're going to put on the screens. Same idea. Paul writes, and have put that we are to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of who? Of our creator. And then 1 Peter 1 just puts it as efficiently as it could. But just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Do you realize how huge this is? Here's what I want you to wrap your minds around this morning. Later in Ephesians 5, we're going to come to a verse where it's going to call husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So in just 23 verses time, husbands are going to be told to love their wives in such a way that makes them think they're married to Jesus. And that's the second hardest thing in this chapter. All you're being told here is to just be like God. 
all the time to everyone. Now, we'll give you a little break, right? You don't need to have his miraculous power. You don't need to be able to speak things into existence. That's a relief, right? But his perfect character, his holiness, his endless love, his abounding grace, his impeccable integrity, his unflinching honesty, his perfect purity. Yeah, you're being called to each and every one of those. And part of the reason that we're giving, given right there in verse 1 is that we are his children. The idea is that children imitate their parents. Right, Gemma, our second oldest, we uh, have long since referred to her as Daddy's shadow. Um, she wants to, to be right here at all times, and I've done nothing to discourage it, okay? Um, but, but back when uh, the twins were born, they spent some time in the NICU, and, and a lot of that time I, I spent on the phone kind of updating people in their condition, and there's one video that Corinne shot in the hospital in particular where she was, had the camera shooting down the hallway, and I'm, I was on the phone, and you need to know, if I'm standing up, I'm a phone pacer. I'm just kind of wandering around the hallways, doing different things. If I'm sitting, I'm fine, but if I'm standing, I'm pacing. And what I didn't know the entire time I was on the phone was that Jimmy was right behind me, acting like she had a phone to her ear and just mimicking everything that I was doing, right? And this is because kids learn from their parents. We think they learn from what we teach them. They really learn most by observing. And this could be encouraging, and it can also be very discouraging for us sinful parents, can it? It's encouraging when they learn good things from us. It's heartbreaking when they mimic our sin. Now, I I have to give one caveat to this, all right? Sometimes your kids just sin on their own, don't they? Uh, A couple weeks ago, I was, Corinne was out, and so I was making dinner for all four girls, and Rhea, uh, one of our one-year-old twins, had finished her plate, and so she started good. She held up her plate and just said the word please. And that's a nice start, right? But she decided I wasn't quick enough to, to meet her demand, and so then she threw her plate on the ground, knocked her cup off the tray, and then just started screaming, an audible scream as loud as she could. Now, unless my wife is a psycho when I'm not home, and I can't quite rule that out, but unless that's the case, right, that's not learned behavior. She just did that all on her own, okay? But do you know, right, do you know who never, ever, ever leads his children into sin? It's our Father in heaven, And the expectation that we find here in the Bible is that the more time that we spend with him, the more and more we should imitate him. And his standard is so high and so perfect, it's overwhelming for us to even think about imitating it. And so here in a bit, I want us to to talk about how we should respond to this. But for now, I just want us to be crystal clear on the ridiculously high standard that his children are called to. We are to imitate God. We are to be holy as he is holy. And I'm going to let that tension sit for a few minutes. Second thing we can see from these two verses is that we should love because we are loved. This section of chapter 5, these first uh, 20 verses before we get into uh, kind of the Christian household, right? Paul's going to list for us three different ways to walk. And all this falls under this heading that that we should imitate God, be like God. And the first of these we find in verse 2, which tells us that we are to walk in the way of love. Now, one of the many reasons that I so appreciate God's word, so much I love God's word, is that his word never tells us what to do without telling us the why. And, And the reason why we should walk in the way of love is given to us right before it. So look at the end of verse 1 when it says this, As dearly loved children... Then verse 2, walk in the way of love. The reason that we should walk in the way of love is because we are first dearly loved children. I want to pause and let that marinate for a second. 
Matthew chapter 3 records for us Jesus' baptism. When, when Jesus comes out of the waters, right, the dove comes down, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then there's this voice from heaven. This is God the Father speaking of him, and it says this, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am I'm well pleased. John chapter 5, Jesus picks up on this idea, and he says this about his Father. He says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Now, it shouldn't be a shock to us that God loves Jesus. But I want you to catch what Jesus prays in John 17. He's praying this about the people who believe in his name. And he says this, Then the world will know that you sent me, and listen to this, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Three verses later in 1726, he says this, I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the, the love you have for me may what? May be in them. And that I myself may be in them. Listen, it's not hard. It shouldn't be hard for us to comprehend God the Father loving God and his son, right? After all, Jesus was the perfect son. I'm talking complete obedience, perfectly unified in, in spirit and purpose and will with the Father. Uh, Jesus says in John 10, the reason that the Father loves me is because I laid down my life. He followed God's will to the end. And Jesus made it possible for God's family to grow. But now we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 that all of us who are in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into God's household. We've been brought into God's family through the work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus prayed in John 17, we just read it, that God loves us with the same love he had for Jesus. This should mean even more to us because Jesus deserved that love and as we just sang, we do not. We most definitely do not. And yet the way that our Father feels about us is not up to us. He's love. He is grace. He is good and he declares that what he feels for you is love. In fact, if you are in Jesus, he sees you the same way he sees Jesus. Now, the reason this matters isn't just to kind of pick you up, right? It should also shape the way that you live for him. The reality that I'm loved deeply by God should be the foundation of everything that I do for him, right? Because this takes away any of my need to perform, right? I'm already loved. I'm already accepted. I don't need to show off in any sort of fake ways. I can be truly authentic in front of him. This takes away any sort of desire to earn God's love. First of all, I never could. And also, I don't need to try to earn what I already have. This takes away any right I have to be prideful. He loved me even though I didn't deserve it. I'm not allowed to be prideful over something that I didn't earn. And so when I'm called to walk in the way of love, when I'm called to live my life in a way that showcases love to all others that I come across, what I'm being called to is, get this, is to simply give them what I already have. I don't need to foster up love. I don't need to create new love. I have received such an amazing reservoir of it from God that I'm free to then give it to others. And the third truth of this is that the love that we are or to imitate is costly. So verse 2 says it's that we are to walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. And if you know the story, you know where that's heading, don't you? How did Christ love us? Verse 2, he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's really pleasant language. But we need to remember what that means. We've all heard the invitation from Jesus of follow me, haven't we? But how often do we consider where his way leads? When we're told to walk in the way of love, how much do we consider where that path actually goes? Because for Jesus, that path took him all the way to the cross, where even though he was wrongly accused, never opened his mouth to defend himself. 
Even though he was beaten, he never fought back. Even though he was whipped, he never resisted. Even though he was nailed to a cross, he did not stop it. And he suffered in agony for hours. And he did not despise it, according to Hebrews. In fact, he endured all the shame and agony of the cross. He embraced it fully and gave the ultimate sacrifice of his life, even though he could have saved himself at any time. How many of you want to sign up for that? But you understand, that's what love is in the Bible, don't you? It's not this cheap, hallmarky, romantic feeling. It's true costly sacrificial love you've never truly loved someone without it costing you something and, and here's the idea right this is this is a much smaller example but this is true you cannot love without costing you something my entire life there are a few things i hate more than talking on the phone and i'm, I'm not kidding you like not only do i not like it there, is there some sort of weird physiological response where my ear actually gets really hot and i can't even hold the phone up to it right but when corinne and i were dating and we were about two and a half hours apart from Metro. Guess what I was doing every single night? Talking on the phone. Sometimes hours, man. It was ridiculous, right? I don't like driving long distances. But when we were dating, that distance was there. Guess what I was doing all the time? Driving. Why? It's because I loved her. And I would rather do what I hated to do to spend time with her than do what I like to do and not spend time with her. And when we love God, and, in that, and that outflows from us to loving others. We do things that we wouldn't do if we were just simply living for ourselves. And you notice how much easy it is just to mow your own yard and to fix your own cars and your own house and spend money on just yourself and, and hog your own time and eat your own food and just live like that? It's so much easier to just do whatever I want whenever I want. But man, that is not loving. And that is not what's been shown to us. And it is not what we are called to. When's the last time you did something inconvenient for somebody else? When's the last time you did something inconvenient for the body of Christ, for the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus? When's the last time you did something for your spouse that you just really didn't want to do? When's the last time you let them go do something they enjoyed, and in doing so, you knew you had to make your life a little bit harder that night? I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's beyond amazing to me that we could ever think that we've been called to a life of love and still try to avoid cost. That's impossible. Love by its nature is costly. And we are called as followers of Jesus to embrace that. So how do we do this, right? How do we respond to such big weighty truths and, and such a massive column? Well, there's three ways, just three simple ways I want us to consider and act upon today. And the first is this, to simply embrace God's love for you. Romans chapter five, verse eight tells us this. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, and listen to this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man, you aren't perfect. In fact, you, you never will be in this life. And what the Bible tells us is that apart from Jesus Christ, you are spiritually dead in your sins. That apart from Jesus Christ, you stand condemned already this morning, and you are deserving of God's wrath. And you're going to hear people push back on these truths, but deep down, we all know this to be true. If we're honest, deep down, it's actually freeing to hear the truth that you aren't the answer because you know you aren't perfect, you know that you're a mess, and that the root of a lot of the problems in your life is actually you. But man, even when people feel that right, they come to that kind of truth, they often react in the wrong ways. What they do is in, in, in response that they decide that it's on them to make up the gap, right? It's on them to, to right all the wrongs they've done in their life. And so this is why human beings become religious. We think that if we can do enough good, then somehow we can appease God. That if we can check off, enough, check off enough boxes, we can earn our way to God. That if we just do enough, maybe he will love us. 
And the Bible says the exact opposite of that is true. That God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I want to be clear on this this morning. Just as you are, just as you sit this morning in your brokenness, in your sinfulness, in your pride, in your selfishness, and in your weakness, and every wrong and rebellious and sinful aspect of who you are, God still loves you and he's never stopped. And the most loving thing that he has ever done for you is that he has made a way for you. In sending Jesus, he's made a way to have all your sins forgiven. In sending Jesus, he's made a way for you to be reconciled to him. He's made a way for you to be brought into his family and, and a way for you to be given eternal life and be with him forever. John chapter three tells us this, for God so what? He so loved the world. There's the impetus again. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him Whoever believes is not condemned, but listen to this. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I'm pleading for you to understand this clearly this morning. A sinner. And so within you, you have zero hope. You've broken God's law, you've broken his commands, you've fallen short of his perfect standard, and you are not only deserving of hell, you are bound for there. But God loved you way too much to let that remain your story. So he came, Jesus Christ took on, God the Son took on the flesh of humanity, lived the perfect life that we could not live, and he took our place on the cross, dying for the punishment and penalty of our sins, and rose again all to offer us that if we believe in him, we can have the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Jesus Christ came to save, not to condemn, because we've already done that. And so your only hope this morning of forgiveness, your only hope for eternal life, your only hope in heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and resurrection to pay your price. The only way to embrace the love God has for you, knowing you did not deserve it and could not earn it, is you must believe in Jesus. Number two, if you've done that, never, ever posture as if you've arrived. I saw this week on the internet that Barry Sanders turned 51 years old. If you don't know who Barry Sanders is, he was the greatest running back in NFL history. I'll make an argument for Walter Payton, get Emmett Smith out of here. I don't even talk about it, all right? But on his 51st birthday, right, one of the things they were doing on SportsCenter and different things, they're just showing some of his old highlights, some of these amazing plays that Barry Sanders made. And you know what, though? I saw a picture of Barry Sanders today. He don't look like he used to. And you know why? He retired. And that's what happens, right? Even for the best of the best, it gets too hard. It hurts less to stop playing. It's a whole lot easier not to stay in shape. It's easier to eat what you want to eat. It's easier to retire. This makes sense athletically, doesn't it? Because the human body breaks down over time. But man, listen to me. This is not a viewpoint we can ever carry into our spiritual life. We can never say things like, well, you know, I've served the church. It's time for the young people to take over. I already went to like 50 Bible studies, so I don't need another. I mean, here's the thing. We're rarely bold enough to say things like that, but boy, do we posture as if it was true. And if we're honest, we do this all the time. How about about this? How about you tell me, if you go weeks without a committed time of prayer, how is that saying anything other than you believe that you don't need God's help in this life? Now, we say, I'm busy, right? I'm distracted. I need to do it more. I'm just a little busy. The reality is you don't think you need it. 
I mean, tell me, every, every day that you go without being in God's word, how is that saying anything other than you are at a spiritual depth of knowledge that you're good with and you don't need to go deeper? Never how you would put it. But is that not what it indicates? Every single sin that we aren't resisting, every sin that we aren't fighting, every sin that we aren't guarding against is a sin that we have just accepted. Every time we say, this is just who I am, you know what we're doing? We are retiring from holiness. And listen to me, we are God's children We should have the same healthy distaste for our sin that he does. We should abhor the idea of ever sliding into neutral. We cannot stall. We cannot accept where we are spiritually. We must live our lives in a continual daily pursuit of Jesus Christ. We have been called clearly to shed our old selves and to put on the new self, created to be like God. You have not arrived. You have not crossed the finish line. You are not yet who you were called to be. And this is undeniable. I'm in the same boat with you. There's a really simple yet convicting line of questioning I want you to take to God today, both now in the response time and later on this day. And it's just this. God, in what areas of my life am I least like you? Show me. Show me the sinful places that I've accepted. Show me the the pursuits of you that I have not taken up. And then, man, when he reveals that, will you make a commitment to him that you're going to get in the game Because I believe this is why he's called us to such a standard. It forces us to never stop needing him. It shows us that we have never arrived. It teaches us how much he hates sin and it invites us into a lifelong pursuit of Jesus Christ. And then in response to this, we have to keep this in mind. Number three, stop resisting cost and sacrifice. Instead, embrace them joyfully. There's this really curious thing that happens to us. Sometimes in doing something, even good like praying, sometimes in praying for certain things, we begin to get the wrong idea about them. So here's, a, here's just a, a recent example from my life. Corinne and I pray every night before going to bed. And, and, and like clockwork, uh, one of the things that just comes out of my mouth is I'll, I'll pray for restful sleep and, and good health for the girls. Right? It's not a bad prayer. Now last Saturday night, I prayed that prayer. Okay, but at midnight, we were awoken by what sounded like coughing in the baby monitor. At least we thought it was coughing. And what was actually happening is that the twins were playing a simultaneous game of who can vomit more. Both of them were winning, okay? Now, I'm not one of those that actually gets physically sick when that happens, but man, my gag reflux fires up repeatedly over and over again. And what I'll tell you, I'll spare you the details, what I'll tell you is I saw things that night that I will never, ever unsee. Okay, there are things that happened to me that I've since tried to repress, and I cannot, all right? But do you know what came out of that? I was actually thinking about this this week. Those twin girls know they have parents that will care for them at all times, no matter how late or gross it is, right? I got three and a half hours of completely unplanned snuggling, something I would kill for when they're teens, Corinne and I were forced to, to work together as a team despite the grossness, and we both came out it with a greater appreciation of the other. And I came into this building last Sunday night on zero sleep, but I was incredibly grateful to have a healthy stomach. Do you know how many Sundays I've come in not thanking God for a healthy stomach? And in my tiredness, it forced me to lean on him. I prayed more last Sunday. I just leaned on him. I said, you've got to give me the energy to get through this day. And that's just scratching. So I'm sure there was even more good that came out of it. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm still praying for restful sleep. I don't ever want to go through that again, all right? But what I cannot do, what I cannot ever do is carry myself as if the aim of Christianity is my own comfort. Because too often we make those things idols. 
when there's nothing in God's word that supports our pursuit of such things. Grace is absolutely a free gift from God, but it is not cheap. Not only did it, not, not only did it cost Jesus' life, but it demands a response. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. He starts with this amazing line, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul said, everything good about me is, is because of the grace of God. But then listen to this. His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, right? The experience of God's grace on our lives should have a profound effect on us. It should change the way we live and the things that we pursue. In fact, Jesus encouraged his followers to consider the cost before deciding to follow him. And yet, often, we resist cost at any point, don't we? But we know deep down that this relationship that we're in is not healthy for us, but we won't end it in order to pursue Jesus more deeply. And we know the things that we're viewing online are sinful and they're damaging to our soul, but it's just too much to ask me to live without a smartphone. And we know that social media is causing us to to compare our lives with others and to be critical and judgmental and to lack contentment, but man, is life really worth living without Facebook? We know that that Jesus has told us to store up treasures in heaven, but our car could be a whole lot nicer than it is. We know that people matter to God more than anything, but we don't want to take the time to invest in others. And we know we've been given a spiritual gift to build up the church, but shouldn't they be happy if I'm just there on a Sunday morning? And we know that everything that we've been given to by God is to be used by us to bless other people, but I got to take care of me first, right? I mean, think of it. When you stand before Jesus one day, what, what, are you, what is your excuse going to be? What's your answer going to be? Oh, Jesus, you don't understand. My new kitchen counters are legit. You saw them. Jesus, you don't get it. I got my handicap down to a four. That's pretty good, right? Jesus, you don't understand. That, that car had seat warmers and a satellite radio. You, you get it. I know I could have sponsored that hungry kid, but I like going out to eat every night, and that's not cheap. Now, before you all storm the stage, okay, I'm not saying it's wrong to take care of the things that God has given you. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a hobby. I'm definitely not saying it's wrong to eat. What I'm saying is this. It's wrong to pour all of your time and all of your investments and all of your money and all of your energy into just you and your family. In fact, it's wrong this morning if you don't have an answer to this question. What has your faith in Jesus Christ actually cost you? And what I can tell you this morning is if you're having trouble answering that right now, then the answer is this, not enough. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing uh, to the church in Corinth. And in this chapter, he's, he's telling them that he's going to come and gather a collection for the believers in Jerusalem who were undergoing a severe famine at the time. And he's bragging on churches in Macedonia that he's already visited about how they gave to this. And listen to what he said. 2 Corinthians 8.2 says this. He writes about these churches that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, and catch this, their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. Does that equation make any sense to you at all? Well, you start with extreme poverty, you throw in joy, and what comes out of that is something that we described as rich generosity. Yet that's what's being celebrated in the scriptures. Listen to me, you've never, ever one time in God's word been called to comfort You've never been called to safety. You've never been called to security. So the question is, what are you risking for Jesus Christ? What are you giving up? We are called to love like him, and that love cost him his very life. What is it costing you?
I want you to wrestle with that question. And I want to close this out by filling you in on, on God's kind of great little secret behind all of this. And I believe we can find it in Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to throw this in the screens for you as well. When we're told this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now listen to this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's great secret in all this that you're called to is that when you love like God loves when you never stop pursuing holiness, when you embrace cost and sacrifice, you never, ever regret it. Because for one, God is the one who lifts you up. He blesses you. He rewards you. And for another, you get to make a difference on things that really, truly, actually matter. I hope you're aware that living in a sin-stained body, existing in a sin-stained world, that nothing worth having in this life will come easy. I hope you're aware that you have not arrived, that you do not love like you are called to love, that you're not experiencing costs like God wants you to. The question is this, what are we going to do about it? Because you can, man. You have the option of accepting right where you are, of selling right into apathy, of, of trying to find purpose in things far less worthy than what God has for you. Or... You can agree this morning to a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. You can ask God to show you the areas of your life that you are least like him. You can ask him to reveal the idols that still exist in your heart, and you can embrace the cost of following Jesus, knowing that when you stand before him, the only thing that will matter in that moment is whatever you did in his name here. Let's pray. God, it is a weighty thing to think that the example we are called is yours. Uh, the person that we are called to imitate is Jesus, that we have been created to be like you. When quite honestly, God, that is not who we are. And so I pray that as a church this morning that we would respond to such a calling in a way that would bring you honor. In a way that would bring you glory and that, that we wouldn't punt on it. That we wouldn't lower the standard that we wouldn't give up and sink into apathy, but we wouldn't commit to you that we will never stop striving for it. Trusting on your grace and your forgiveness and the work of Jesus on the cross to, to forgive us of the times that we fail, but then to get back in the fight. Lord, may the people who call FBN home be people who aren't afraid of sacrifice, who aren't afraid of cost, but willingly and joyfully give things up for the purpose of Jesus. And then, Lord, for anybody who's in our midst this morning, who walked into this building today not having a relationship with Jesus Christ, not having their sins forgiven, not knowing that if they died this evening where, that, that they have any hope of heaven, right now in their seat where they're sitting, God, that they would surrender to you. They would believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and give you control. And we ask that you'll do all these things to your glory and exaltation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before our worship team leads us through one final song, 
I'm going to give you a couple moments just to kind of respond and reflect and play, pray to God uh, on just some things he might have put on your heart this morning. If you need some guidance, we've got some stuff on the screens for you. But mostly, this is just your time with him.